Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. No matter what they do professionally, many of our guests are mothers. Even more have had mothers. So today, in honor of Mother's Day, we're speaking with creative people who have been inspired by their mothers. In the second half of the show, we'll feature local authors Lisa Kwong and Maria Hamilton Abagunde, who have written about their mothers. But first, we spotlight a project that allows women to imaginatively explore their mothers' lives. We speak with Eliza Simpson and Aubrey Cedar, producers of the Motherline Story Project. Based in New York City, the Motherline is a storytelling project and podcast that invites women to perform monologues in the first-person voice of their mothers. Eliza and Aubrey brought some stories to share, and they spoke to me at the WFIU studios. Hello, I'm Eliza Martin Simpson. I'm an actor, writer, and dialect coach living in New York City. And I'm Aubrey Cedar. I am also an actor and a radio producer um, living in Bloomington, Indiana. I've brought you both in today to talk about the Motherline Story Project. Could you uh, tell me a little bit about what that is? Sure. The Motherline Story Project is a storytelling collective that I started in 2015 as a way to generate more new works for women. The idea, the concept comes from this, this pagan belief, which centers around any woman, because she has the potential to be a mother, she is, for the nine months that she's in, inside her mother, she is a womb within a womb. And so there's a belief that there is a, a connection through those, through those wombs within wombs within wombs within wombs, um, a connection back through your heritage called the mother line. It's a very strong connection. It's a very available connection. And so uh, I knew about that uh, tradition, that, that idea, that concept. Uh, but being an actor and a storyteller... I wanted to apply it theatrically, and so I invited women that I knew, storytellers. Um, and when I say women, I, see, I say, uh, I mean anyone who identifies as a woman, because I believe that the womb is an energetic construct. So if you're a woman, I invited uh, you to come to write a short-form monologue in the first-person voice of an ancestor, uh, someone on your mother line. And uh, what began as these very comfortable kind of low-stakes sharing story sessions, it's grown into this uh, woman's artistic incubator and then platform. And it is a, a theatrical exercise that can renew itself and is always intensely personal and specific to the group that's doing it. Aubrey, how did you get involved in the project? So um, Eliza and I went to the same school, and we were in the same BFA acting program. And so when I moved to New York after I graduated, Eliza and I actually worked at the same place. And um, we were talking one day, and she told me about this thing she was doing with some of the friends that she had had that had worked with her at places like The Flea and other theaters. And then she was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to invite you. Like, you can come too. So I ended up going to... I think the second mother line. Um, and then I heard these amazing stories. There's something really magical about hearing women 
speak in the voices of their ancestors because they're not just telling an anecdote. You're really transported by the story itself because it's so personal. It's almost like it happened to them because you feel like um, what happens to my family and what has happened to my family in the past it has also happened to me because in a weird way it has. So I was really moved by everything that I heard and Eliza talked to me. I think it was, it was maybe on the train that night about how she wanted to do a radio podcast. But she asked me um, shortly after that to be her co-producer for the radio projects. And so I became like more involved and came to more of the more of the workshops. I was in the first theatrical performance of the monologues. And how did you decide that you would have women come in and speak in the first person? Well, it stems from a theatrical sense that the most compelling story is a story that's happening right now. So to write a story, you choose an ancestor, and then you go back to a moment in their life, a real moment in time. You learn as much as you can. You get as much historical context for that moment as you can. Then you use those details, you know, um, how many how many siblings she had, what was her setup, what was her context, you know, what did she do in her daily life. But then when there are gaps, you fill in those gaps just with your instinct. The idea being that your instincts are tied to this person through your genetics. And so it's a powerful, it's a powerful place to be when you feel like your instincts are being backed up by generations and generations of experience. I believe that speaking first person and to someone specific in a real moment of time, that's a very dynamic theatrical tool. Do the women who give these monologues do research to find out more about their mothers? Yes, absolutely. So everyone who's invited, we give them a very specific writing structure. If they choose to stray from it and go in their own direction, that's great. But we give everyone a plan of attack. And that is, you choose an ancestor, you research as much as possible, and whenever you can, you use the truth. You use real historical facts. And then where there are gaps, you fill it in. But it is a, an exercise in learning about your own history and then using yourself as a creative tool. When we got together and started sharing these fascinating stories about our own families, it turned out the stories behind the stories were also really great. The stories about how you know a storyteller, a woman right today, went back and researched and found this nugget of cool in her own history. That was often really interesting. So we've paired the monologues themselves with the stories behind the stories so you can find out how the storyteller went back into her own history and found that incredible uh, nugget of truth. And where do you find uh, women to tell these stories? Um, we, as a kind of anyone who's involved in the Motherline Story Project, anyone who's come to one of the nights, can invite a friend. So it's, it's word of mouth. It's theatrical communities. It's communities. Sorry, not theatrical communities. It's just communities. Reaching out to other people you think might be interested who might want to share a story. I think Aubrey said something really cool, really great, which is that when you hear these stories, when you hear people speaking in the voices of their ancestors, it is so compelling because it isn't an anecdote. You know, when, when someone's trying to tell you a story about their aunt or their great-great-grandma, you kind of glaze over because you're just not connected. It's just, 
it's a real life long ago and you're not connected to it and it sounds great. Yeah, thank you for telling me. But it's so real to them because that person and that anecdote, that was a real person. So when you tell the story in first person, you allow the whole audience to kind of meet that real person and engage in their real experience. And suddenly they care about your family stories as much as you do. They're just as real to them. And I think that that is the magic of this project. What have you each learned about motherhood since doing this? Well, what I've learned is that it is a courageous, courageous and epic job, often a thankless job, but a completely unique experience. The beauty of these stories, no one is the same. They're so vibrantly, uniquely different. And in writing these stories, the storytellers will often find out they're learning a lot about themselves. I think kind of like a, like a period film will tell you a lot more about the time in which it was made rather than the time it's trying to depict. If you write a story about the women who came before you, you find out you're writing a lot about the woman right now who's telling the story. So um, I learned to be patient and kind with mothers, but I've also, you know, I've also learned to be patient and kind with myself. A really weird thing that I learned about mothers and also about women is just it's a brave job and it's oftentimes a thankless job but there's also this sense of singleness and aloneness that a mother is you know she's so much a part of her children because she made them and especially I feel like as a daughter I've always felt my mom is like an extension of me and so doing what Eliza said when I was writing my stories and I was writing about my mother and my grandmother I realize that they are me in a sense and that can terrify me. But if I kind of have the courage to look further, it's they astound me. And it also shows me that like motherhood is a huge job. But (laughs) I've learned from researching my history that when you become a mother, I feel like all mothers sort of go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. What This is such a huge job and I wasn't prepared and I can't do it. And these lives are entrusted to you, but you're just a human that like slowly becomes superhuman. So um, it's exploded my vision of what a mother is. And it's also made me much more of an advocate for mothers and women in general, that their stories and their contributions be, um, be recognized, the small ones and the large ones, because the smallest things in these stories are things that I think that I never hear spoken about or appreciated. And so I really, I, I've learned to appreciate, I've learned to appreciate that in, in every woman, the little things um, that they do. Absolutely. And also we found, because we have storytellers who were not raised by their biological mothers, you know, what's so clear to us is that in these stories, the job of motherhood starts after birth, that the, your mother makes you, but she makes you every day. That job of motherhood is this unending, just beautiful saga that goes and goes and goes and goes. So today you've brought in uh, a number of uh, stories from the Motherline Story Project. Um, could you tell us about a little bit about the first story? Sure. So Asia came in with a story that she'd written 
in her mother's voice, kind of responding to the question, have you ever done anything extraordinary? And this is where the Motherline Story Project gets super unique because that question could be taken a million different ways. But Asia's mother chose something very specific to speak to. Uh, she brings up a, a pretty sensitive topic, um, a pretty political topic, but that's not necessarily what what's really important to me about this story is that the mother is coming to her child to mend a relationship or to create a relationship that the two of them have never had before because she explains in the story how she hasn't felt she never felt connected to her mother in a way that she wants to be connected to her own children and she doesn't want to this mother doesn't want to die and for her child to lose her history, you know, and be lost in a way because she wasn't connected to her mother. So that's what I think is really moving about this story. All right, let's hear uh, the first story from the Motherline Story Project. After the story, we'll hear a short clip from an interview with the storyteller. I had an abortion. Your brother was two, which is why I knew I had to have an abortion. Mm, Let's see, it was 1974. I got lucky there. Abortion had only been legal a couple of months. I can't imagine what would have happened to me if... Hmm? Oh. At a doctor's office downtown. I had called Graham and Aunt Patsy to come and get Matthew because... uh, I, I was in a lot of pain afterwards. It didn't go very smoothly and I couldn't take care of him. So they came... And I didn't tell them what had happened. I just told them that I was sick. And then after two days without him, I totally freaked out. And I called them and I said, you have to bring him back. And they did. And I was crying and upset. And I told Graham what had happened. I don't think it's what I did. It's that I had done it. You know, I was supposed to be Anne's perfect, beautiful, happy Wendy. And I think that's what really upsets me about the way that you and I communicate. Because, you know, I wrote Graham so many letters over the years, and just like you do with me, I lifted out the most positive, happy moments to share with her. But I never shared the emotional stuff, the real stuff. And honestly, I don't think she ever really knew me. She thought she did, but she really didn't. And I'm so afraid that that's going to happen with us that I'll die and you'll realize that there are so many questions that you wanted to ask me and by then it'll be too late because I'll be gone. I think about you every day and I wonder about the things that you don't tell me. I worry that when I'm gone, you'll realize that there are things you wish you had told me. So let's not do that, okay? Let's get to know each other. Please. 
But turning towards me, he smiles so freely. I'm reminded I can be lonely. And though he's found me, I am still searching. Is that wisdom? Or am I hurting? Cause I don't want to take this ring. I, my mother happened to be here visiting. And so I decided to take her to the park. I realized that I could have just sort of drawn from something that I already knew about specifically, but I, in the spirit of doing what this monologue ends up asking, I decided to get to know my mom a little bit more and I just asked her if she'd ever done something extraordinary. And this was her first response. This is the story she told me and I, I just, you know, made a mental sort of picture of her words and then came home and typed it up. I did go back and sort of fact check a little bit, like just making sure when Roe v. Wade actually passed, which was in 1973, and this was early on in 1974, so just, you know, confirming that she was 25. I originally had written that she was 26, but it was actually in between her birthdays. It was cool to just get the historical background on that kind of stuff as well. I mean, I had mothers come up to me and say, I've been trying to tell my daughter that for years. You know, that was a really intense and moving thing to hear. And I don't see any reason why she wouldn't be very pleased to hear all of that. <laughs> well, I, I had an abortion when I was 21. I knew my mom had had an abortion. I didn't know sort of the exact circumstances surrounding it. So if anything, I just feel like it's another thing that brings us closer together, um, having had an experience like that. I like knew vaguely that she was in her 20s. I, I just didn't, I had never pried and it was never something we had talked about. So yeah, this was my first time learning like the external circumstances of it. I think that, I mean, I can only speak personally, but it seems also that in America in general, culturally we don't we don't hold on to the stories of our family and we and we don't pass them on in the same way that I see other cultures I don't currently have sort of like framed photographs of my grandparents or my great-grandparents or extended family members sort of in my home I don't I don't think about when they were born or when they passed I mean beyond you know sort of who is still living or who we all you know think of, but I, I don't feel like I, I honor my family actually yet in a, in a way in which I'd like. And just by simply speaking our ancestors' names, it, it does keep them alive. And that feels good. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, in honor of Mother's Day, we're listening to excerpts from the Motherline Storytelling Project. The project brings women together to tell stories from their motherline. Next, producer Eliza Simpson introduces a story by Alice. The next story we've chosen is from Alice. She's a London native and moved to New York. Um, the story was prompted by the idea of secrets, ones that we keep, ones that we tell, and what they do to us and how we carry them. This story is fascinating. It's about a secret that her mom kept for a long time. 
that she found out from her grandmother who'd kept it for a long time. And Alice feels that this secret is one of the ones that's defined her whole life. I had the house to myself. I can't remember where you two were, probably playing somewhere. Helen at Bonnie's, you at Monica and Matthew's. Enjoying your last few days of being little Americans for three weeks a year. Mama had gone to Tai Chi. I knew I shouldn't be in there. But I knew I was looking for something. I knew there was a secret in there. I knew the trespass was worth it. Mama's study, with its fascinating artefacts, relics from a life well-lived, precious stones, crystals, various South and Central American knickknacks, photographs of young Mama, of Papa, of Dad and the brothers, of you two. Smell of incense. The feel of that orange and red long-haired carpet between my toes, one of her magnificent gowns hanging on the wardrobe door. Everything that was usually so familiar and so comforting was somehow making me feel more and more alien. I knew my target was the desk. Her desk, covered in papers. Her notebooks left open where she'd fearlessly left last night's dream, caught from the edges of the air and converted onto paper in an attempt to keep it. Bills, letters... Newspaper clippings cut out, sent to the relevant son. I would find it interesting. I knew I shouldn't be in there. But I knew I was looking for something. I knew there was a secret in there. I knew the trespass was worth it. It was early evening. And the heat of the day was only just beginning to cool off. But I felt cold from the nap I just had as I opened the top drawer on the left-hand side of the desk. I didn't even have to rummage. Poking out from underneath just a few bits of paper was what I was looking for. What I knew was there without knowing. I knew there was a secret in there. I knew the trespass was worth it. It's funny how one piece of paper can confirm can change, can move, (laughs) can electrocute every cell in your body. A photograph. A man and a woman and two children. A happy family. Here on Mama's driveway, posing for the camera. I knew the man. I knew him well, but with each second that went by, I was rapidly unknowing him. His outline, his structure was quickly falling away. The man is my husband and your father. Or the little boy must be Ben. Which must mean the woman is Joe. I knew about that. But who is the little girl? There's a little girl in that photograph. I'd have to wait for Mama to return from Tai Chi to ask, but I... Already knew. I knew there was a secret in there. I knew the trespass was worth it. So this is how I found out that your father had been lying when he said he couldn't come with us to Florida at Easter because he had to work. 
so he would go later in the summer. This is how I found out that Mama knew more than I did about our marriage. This is how I found out that there was a new addition to his secret family, but that she wasn't new. The little girl in the photograph, your half-sister, Jessica, looked about two years old. The betrayal, the anger, the embarrassment would all come later. In that moment, I felt tired again. I stared at the photograph and it made me tired. I closed my eyes as the tears started to come and I tasted metal in my mouth. I put the photograph back where I found it, tucked carelessly beneath some bills as though it belonged there with other ordinary papers. I wanted to lie down and I waited for you two to return, my girls. The only real things I knew in that moment. I knew there was a secret in there. Now it was my secret. Maybe I should start from the beginning. So when I sat down to write this piece, I didn't speak to her. And I just, I've got this memory of how it happened and what happened. And I wrote it and I kind of relived it as I was writing it. And I remembered as a teenager, I would have been about, this was 92 and this happened, so I would have been four. But as a teenager, I actually retook her steps in this and did the same thing and went into my grandmother's study and looked for the photograph. And I think I was with my sister. So this is a strange mixture of what my mum's told me and my memory of doing that. And this is a very visceral experience writing this. I say I tasted metal in my mouth. I was actually tasting metal in my mouth when I wrote that, you know. So that mm-hmm. it's all like a mix of truth and memory and how your memory distorts things. Because my mum first told me the story pff, over 10 years ago. And especially something as close as this, you know, this has affected my whole life. So it's like... I inherited her story and what she told me, what happened to her. It really became part of me too. So that that's kind of what this is. You know, when I was t- asking her permission to do this, she was saying, well, you know, just maybe change the names and be careful, I don't want someone to hear it or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I was like, Mum, it's not a secret anymore. You don't have to worry about that. I'm just worried about your feelings. That's what I'm concerned about. And she was like... Okay, darling, thank you. Because <laughs> it's not, you know, everyone knows. I mean, there's no point in not talking about it. There, there are stories too, and they deserve, they deserve a voice, I think. They deserve exploring more. They deserve, they deserve their time. And if we don't explore them, they just stay, they stay within their time, which is past, which they don't have to Today on Profiles, we're listening to stories from The Motherline, a New York-based storytelling workshop. Here are The Motherline producers Eliza and Aubrey introducing the next story. This next story is from Lauren. It's in the first person of her mother, and the story's kind of special. Uh, Lauren is actually present in the story as a tiny baby, so she talked to her mother, interviewed her mother, found out all of the history of this particular moment in time. 
and then she chose to capture it on the answering machine of her mom's friend. This is a really um, difficult moment for her mother. She's reaching out to her friend to try to get her out of a relationship that's no longer safe for her. Using an answering machine was, uh, this was one of the first times we'd kind of implemented technology into our storytelling, and you can see that it it tells a very specific story, a woman kind of reaching out, not even knowing if this message is going to be heard. It proves why direct address and this whole theatrical experiment of storytelling, especially for the radio, is so moving. You know, you're sort of confused at first about what's happening, but then you get further and further along, and it's this beautiful story, this beautiful moment of this person having this realization that they just need to get out and they, and they need to to move along. And I think um, bringing together the public vulnerability of theater and the sort of nice, private comfortableness of radio, it's it's so wonderful. And I think that it, um, it represents the project really well, this monologue, and what the project is capable of in terms of um, sharing stories in a moving, compelling, personal way. All right, here's a story by Lauren, followed by a clip of her discussing her mother's experience. Hi. It's me. Uh, I I need you to call me back. I I need help. Uh, I need I'm locked in the bathroom. Lauren is here with me. We're okay. We're okay, but I'm afraid. I've got to get out of here. I've got the bare necessities packed. I've rented an apartment on May Street, and I need you to come get me. Bring a van and movers. I can tell you how to get there on the way. It's um, in Riverside. It's near Margaret Street. <laughs> Sorry. That's... <laughs> Margaret is my mother's name. I don't... <laughs> I will not let this happen to me. I made the wrong choice, and I have to fix it. It was the reliable choice. It was the safe choice, and no one stopped me. So so now I will be sneaky. I will be resourceful. I will get out. This feels like life or death. I know it might sound dramatic, but something is compelling me, and I know that this will be hard on her, and I'm going to spend my life trying to make up for it, but I never want to come back to this house or to this man or to this feeling. I have seen how life can be different, and it's wonderful and terrible. And so I have to try there's no one else who can help me so please uh, I'll, I'll call again when I can please get everything ready we'll be f- fine and thank you okay, okay I, I have to go now goodbye I knew when we were given the prompt the person that I wanted to ask was my mother because she's kind of a uh, still waters run deep sort of person I know she has a lot of things that Um, she hasn't gotten to share because I haven't been her adult child uh, yet. Um, And how that relationship changes is always kind of fun. But I I wanted to ask my mom, and she immediately knew 
with this prompt, The Road Not Taken, uh, that she had a very specific moment in mind, and that was uh, when she was deciding to stay or go away from my father. Uh, So I knew sort of kind of the events that surrounded it, but I wasn't exactly sure uh, what had happened, and definitely nothing uh, emotional coloring the thing it was just like well and then this happened and then I moved here and then we lived in this place for a while and then we kept on living so I had never asked her about it before and it was really interesting because she she was very willing to talk about it and it was the most stream of consciousness thing that I had ever heard her do and she I think felt really good telling it to me but the most important thing I got out of it was that at one point She said, I want to make sure that you know that none of this was ever about you, which I think, you know, every kid from a divorced family needs or wants secretly to hear. Um, And something about that was really lovely um, for her to say and for me to be able to have and take with me. And also getting to know my mother as a scared 25-year-old on a bathroom floor with me <laughs> in a baby chair, you know, not knowing what to do uh, with her with her situation and feeling afraid and alone. And that's not really something that you think about in terms of your parents that much, um, that they are human. And uh, that was a very human moment. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Today is Mother's Day, and we're celebrating motherhood by listening to stories produced by the Motherline Story Project. Producer Eliza Simpson introduces the next story. This story is from Lindsley. She's a Texas native. And this story uh, came from her researching a branch of her family tree that she'd never had any contact with before. Um, she uh, She found these records of her family that trace her lineage all the way back to the last member of her family um, in, who was in slavery in the United States. Um, this woman has one name, one recorded name, and um, the details about her life are very, very sparse, but we do know that she was married um, between the ages of like 13, 14, 15. She was very young when she got married, um, and she... Uh, she had lived in slavery and then became a free woman, um, but did not have a last name. So Lindley was uh, so struck by that, by by this young woman completely alone, um, kind of pushing her way out of slavery into freedom and not taking on the last names of her masters, not taking on the last name of her husband, but completely whole into herself. And I think she's captured her at the moment right before her wedding. And it's a, it's a pretty incredible interpretation. Can I tell you something? I am feeling anxious itchy and I need to tell someone this and you're as good as anyone else I don't have a family name I don't even have a family to speak of it doesn't bother me I like not being lumped in it is a comfortable blank space it feels like I have a little stitch of me that is all mine and of all the little stitches of me that there are this one isn't for anyone else. 
separate, but whole unto itself, whole by herself, a secret. What if I can't do it? I'm worried I will mess something up after I've gotten ready, hair combed, wrapped, held into place. What if I can't make myself do it? All that fuss and then what? What if he's looking at me and all of a sudden my feet are no good? I can't lift one or the other and I'm stuck. What would they do then? What would he do? I can see it in my head. I would try and try and they would pull but stuck I would stay. My stubborn feet. Or what if I dig my feet in and then I push so hard that I lift and lift and lift and all of a sudden I am above everyone else floating across the top of their heads, just out of reach. Higher and higher until I'm somewhere else. That sounds nice, don't you think? Flying. Well, not so much flying as floating. A girl up there floating all by herself like something not of this world. Above the whole wide everything until it all just seems like nothing more than a bunch of dots. I wonder why you jump over a broom. Who thought of that? Why a broom? Never asked anyone that. A broom makes me think of work. Sore hands and feet, a back bent and crouching, moving back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, moving dirt around, calluses where young fleshy skin used to be. Sort of seems like a joke to me but one that isn't very funny. One that makes you feel a little sad after hearing it. So this kind of fell into my lap a a little bit. I was doing some research online. I've always had a great interest in delving into my African-American heritage, and it's not something that that part of my family um, really has like a, a wealth of knowledge about as far as where we were before a certain time. So I was just doing a little research and... I found something and that was really cool. That was very exciting. I ended up finding a pretty extensive family tree that traced my family back to the last people in my family that were born into slavery in America. So that was sad and wonderful and also, wow, I've, I've found this whole other, other half of me that I didn't really ever have fleshed out before. So it was pretty exciting. So the ritual that I discuss in my piece is jumping the broom. And um, that's something traditionally American slaves did in place of having a marriage ceremony because um, slaves could not get married. So I don't know. I've always kind of been interested in the ritual. It's always something I've wondered if I would do at my wedding because it also became very fashionable again in America to do around the 70s, right after the civil rights movement. So it's always something that I've sort of wondered if I would do. And then I thought about what if it was the only thing I could do. And um, I'm it's estimated that she was anywhere from like 12 to 15 years old when she got married. So this very young girl who was someone's literal property in some tiny way not belonging to anyone. I was so in love with that detail of her. Uh, so I really wanted to explore that. Next, we'll hear a story performed by Amanda. Again, here's the Motherline producers, Eliza Simpson and Aubrey Cedar, introducing the next story. This story is brought to us by Amanda. 
Amanda is a Maryland native. This story was prompted by one of our explorations into kind of family myths and tall tales. And um, every once in a while, your real history brushes up against history history. Um, Amanda's great-grandmother was in the hospital ward or the maternity ward with Shirley Temple after Shirley Temple, who was then Shirley Black, uh, got her C-section in Bethesda Naval Hospital. So Amanda knew that these historically happened, and she took uh, artistic interpretation of what that, what that meeting and what that friendship might have looked like. This was like one of the most hilarious stories that I, I'd heard. And um, you can get super serious talking about people's personal histories, but Amanda's Amanda's motherline is great because she's had so much of it present during her life. She knows so much, I feel like, about her family history, of especially these three generations of herself, her mother, her grandmother, or four because it's her, her great-grandmother as well. And so she was just this wealth of knowledge about these women that were in her life and um, how much they meant to her, but also who they were. And so getting the, these interviews were just really fun to like to edit and to to listen to. And um, yeah, it was it was a it was a blast. Oh, it's very pretty, Shirley. Very pretty. As I say, you didn't have to give me this. But I do love it. And the girls will think it's something special. They just love curly top. And Jean's favorite color is blue. But, Shirley, I don't have anything to give you in return. Or any more stories to tell. As I say, we've been in these damn beds so long, you know everything there is worth telling. Except... I'll tell you something, Shirley. But it's just for you. This picture's mine. This secret's yours. And mine. As I say, I... Oh. I think he's ugly. My baby's ugly. He looks like... Like a stewed, wrinkled prune. All purple and angry. Or a, a, a squished, pissed-off turd. You know, they told me it'd be easier, safer, in the hospital. That a, a cesarean would make him prettier, even. They didn't do their job, dumbasses. I did mine. My baby's ugly, Shirley. Mike's baby. He's... My, my girls, they were so very pretty, but they're Sydney's, and Mike's baby, his boy, he's, oh, I was not like this with my girls. <laughs> As I say, they'll, they'll love this picture. You're so sweet, Shirley. And maybe I'll start my own collection. And I don't tell anyone that I... Yeah. Thank you.
You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. Today is Mother's Day, and in honor of the day, we're listening to stories from the Motherline Story Project. The Motherline is a storytelling collective that invites women to perform monologues in the first-person voice of their mothers. Next, we'll hear one last story from the Motherline. Producer Eliza Simpson and Aubrey Cedar introduce the story. So this last story that I brought in um, is from Eliza. What? (laughs) You brought in my story? What? (laughs) It's from Eliza, my co-producer and um, the creator of the Motherland Story Project. Um, She is a New York native, um, and I'm going to let her set up her own story. Well, all right. This story is in the first person of my great-grandmother, my mother's mother's mother. Um, this is a great example of how when you are digging through history, every once in a while a detail will pop up that will just make your eyes cross because it's too weird. Uh, in speaking to my mother about this woman who had nine kids, my mom just happened to mention, yeah, and she lost a tooth with every kid. And my response, I couldn't believe, I said, she lost a tooth? for every baby? How is that even possible? My mom said, well, they didn't have prenatal vitamins. Your body needed to get calcium somehow. Popped it right out of your own mouth. Which led to the writing of this story. (laughs) And I hope you enjoy. Are you sure you're a doctor? You don't look nearly old enough. Dr. Hershey is my doctor. He always gives me my results. How old are you? You are never 25. Well, you don't look it. How old do you think I am? Don't answer that. I know. I know. I know how I look. And it's the babies. The babies took my teeth. I lost this one with Joseph. He's my oldest. He's my strength. He's 25. Then this one here in the front, I lost for Madge, summer of 14. Then this one for the twins. Eh, They were too good for me. They're with Jesus now. Uh, This one here is for Jean, year after. Well, this one in the front here popped right before Louis did. Thought he was never going to come. And then I rested. But the Lord has plans, and so... This one for Connie and 25, and this one for Agnes and 28, and then two for Mary, though I don't know why. She's such a skinny thing. But Mary's my last. I have had my babies. I'm finished. I've had my change of life. uh, But they, they don't tell you. They don't tell you about the pains, the indigestion. It's terrible. That's what I keep telling Dr. Hershey. You you got to give me something for this indigestion. It, it's terrible. They, and they don't tell you. And I'm too old. I'm too old. I, I, I can't eat. I don't sleep. And this morning, I spat out a tooth. So like I keep saying, you got to give me something for this indigestion. Because it, it, I am too old for this. I'm too old for this pain.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, we're listening to stories about motherhood. In the last part of the show, we'll hear pieces from two local authors. First, a poem by Lisa Kwong. Kwong is a lecturer at IU in English and Asian American Studies. Most of her work deals with growing up Asian in Appalachia. She's working on her first full-length poetry book. Lisa's poem is about her mother. So in this poem, I am three years old, so that would be around 1984. So she immigrated from China in 1980, so she would have been the States for about only four years. Um, she and my father owned a restaurant, and at that time, their staff was pretty small, so they worked very long hours. And I didn't get to see my parents very much growing up because they were always working so much. So also probably around this time, my mom probably didn't know that much English or she was just learning. This poem is called Blind Spot. I once loved a man without fear, loved him so hard. I crushed him with the limo-sized love I gave every day. His cold heart tried to warm. The comfort I offered hardened him more. He flung himself against the door until he escaped, leaving me. Once Daddy left the front door unlocked. Three years old, I wandered outside, down the front stairs, down the narrow concrete path, not yet ragged after years of weather and feet beating. I wandered to the driveway where the long, dark blue Lincoln began to back up. I just wanted to say goodbye. Mommy saw the open door. She knew. She ran, ran to find my small hand reaching out to touch the back bumper of the Lincoln. Daddy braked sudden when he saw Mommy standing behind the car, slowly holding me up, me waving. Daddy silenced the ignition. I was the baby daughter then, the American Diamond daughter, first American-born, showing signs of spunk and diva, shaking hands of strangers without fear, dancing and singing like the birds I love to watch through windows. Today, I fear cars backing up and not seeing me. I curse pedestrians wearing dark clothes at night. How do you expect anyone to see you? I shout inside my car, knowing they can't hear me. Mommy hugged me so tight she could have crushed me. She tells me her heart almost stopped. Voice shaking, she shudders when she thinks, what if? She tells me they lit incense, bowed to the ancestors for sparing my life. Our final story for this hour is by Maria Hamilton Abagunde. Abagunde teaches courses at IU's African American and African Diaspora Studies. She is also the director of the Graduate Mentoring Center at IU's graduate school. Abagunde's story is about her mother. This is my mother's story as well as my own story. You know, they are intertwined as often they are. So I am going to actually just read a piece that I wrote regarding something, and it is self-evident what I'm going to talk about. So I've titled it actually The Hand of God, Yemonja, and Oshun, and you'll see why. Many years ago, I showed a photographer a black and white Polaroid of my mother and me at Bathway Beach in Grenada in the West Indies. 
He studied the fingerprint that swirled out of the water. As much as he tried, he could not identify its origin. According to him, it was not part of the paper, and it did not appear that someone had touched it before it dried. My mother died during my teenage years, less than 10 years after her younger sister took this photograph on one of our weekly Sunday outings. If I don't look at the photo, my memory is this. I am afraid. I resist my mother's attempts to pull me deeper into the water. We are in a tug of war. She moves forward with me. I move back against her. Behind us, waves splash over the miles-long breakwater of rock pulled from the mountains that surround us. White foam crests above them and around our feet. Truth of who we were in that moment, something I did not know at the time of her death. When I really look, what I know is this. When I really look, what I know is this. I could not have been afraid. I have not yet moved to the United States where I will learn that I speak with an accent and eat different food. That I am a black girl who can read so well that the nuns tell my mother the opposite. Or that I belong to a place no one will care about until 1985. And that snow exists. People don't speak when they pass you in the street and there are no mango trees or beaches where I live. My mother's right hand is on the back of my right arm, her left hand on the front of my left arm. Her feet are anchored in the sand, her knees bent slightly as she supports me. I am leaning back, left foot in front of the right, knees bent, waiting for the waves to recede. We are both waiting. She for me to let her know when to lift me gently, me for her to pretend that she does not do this. Together we wait for this baptism into the Atlantic. I am smiling a child's smile, curiosity, courage, and uncertainty all folded into the curve of my bottom lip and wide-opened eyes. My mother's body is tight, poised, and ready to withstand the next beating wave against her ankles and legs. She knows that a misstep, an unexpected wave, can pull us both down. At worst, we will be dashed against the breakwater and drown. At best, we will capsize laughing into each other's arms, trying to blow water out of our noses and brushing sand and seaweed out of our bathing suits for days to come. Sometimes I do not see the fingerprint, but when I do, I think about the old photographer as he marveled at the miracle before his eyes. It's like an invisible hand touched this photograph, he said, left its mark. And that is the truth. Years before I became what and who I am now, Yemonja, mother of the Orishas, Oshun, her sister, and my own mother conspired to make me fearless before water, an element that keeps us alive and that can kill us, that can change form and transform landscapes over centuries by gently lapping against the earth. It is the one element, as some people say, that has no enemies. We need it more than it needs us. I could not have known that day, with my mother at the beach, that she had initiated me into the community of fearless black girls and women who walk into the deepest part of the ocean with their eyes open and singing for the mermaids to meet them. Twenty years after this photograph was taken, I was invited to be the lead team teacher for the first leg of the historic Middle Passage voyage with Captain Bill Pinckney, a project that retraced roots of the transatlantic slave trade backwards. 
I had never sailed. It didn't matter. I wanted to experience and teach history in a way most people would never be able to do. The moment I accepted the offer, I knew this. I would be making the two-month voyage very differently than my ancestors had. I would be safe. My mother had never let me enter the water alone. She had always held my hand even in the shallow parts. Now would be no different. That day, on the beach, she had prepared me to enter the Atlantic to meet my destiny in a way I could not have seen possible, but perhaps that she, as my mother, may have already dreamed. We'd like to give a big thanks today to Lisa Kwong and Maria Hamilton Abugunde for reading their work. Also, thanks to the Motherline producers, Aubrey Cedar and Eliza Simpson. You can check out more from the Motherline Story Project by visiting their website at elizasimpson.com slash Motherline Story Project. Over and over again No, I would not give you false hope On this strange and mournful day But the mother and child reunite Is only emotional Just can't believe it's so Though it seems strange to say I've never been late so low Such a mysterious way In the course of a lifetime runs Over and over again But I would not give you false hope strange and mournful day when the mother and child reunion is only a way. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.